Well, we're going to turn now to uh, our reading. Uh, we're beginning this morning a new series in the book of Exodus. Uh, but just before we do so, uh, you'll see down there on the sheets our next catechism, our third catechism question. Uh, what does the Bible primarily teach? Any time you come to the Bible, this is a great little answer to have in your head. What is it God is trying to do when you open your Bible in the morning? Children, when perhaps you sit with your parents at, at tea time and look at the Bible. Uh, when you come on a Sunday morning, what is it primarily God is trying to do? Here's the answer. The Bible primarily teaches what man must believe about God and what God requires of man. What are we to believe? First and foremost, that's the first duty, belief. And in light of that belief, how are we to act? So with that in mind, let's hear uh, the words of the Holy Spirit this morning from Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, that the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives to him and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egypt women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, 
And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, let's pray if we look at this story more closely. Our Father, we pray very simply this morning that through these words, these words of the living God, you would show us what we should believe about you. Grant us faith. And show us too what you require from us, your people. Grant us repentance and obedience. Uh, this we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, I saw this uh, week uh, on social media somewhere. Someone posted a picture of what looked like a Monopoly board. Uh, but when you looked a bit more closely, uh, across the middle of the board was written, not Monopoly, but Monotony. And all the squares had been changed rather than Park Lane and Old Kent Road and Pall Mall. It was the lockdown version. Your bedroom, the top of the stairs, the middle of the stairs, the bottom of the stairs, the kitchen, the kitchen table. Uh, On and on it went around the board. Uh, At the moment, life is incredibly monotonous for many of us, isn't it? And the question that's being asked is, when are we going to get out Uh, The press is full of of, uh, speculation at the moment. Perhaps the UK will be the second country out of COVID, uh, given the speed of the vaccination project. Uh, We want to get out. But actually, that feeling of wanting to escape, uh, wanting release, wanting freedom from the difficulties in our lives, is not just a COVID reality, is it? Uh, Many of us... Uh, irrespective of of the lockdown and the pandemic, uh, many of us have things in our lives that we just wish we could escape. We feel trapped. Maybe a job uh, that we hate. It may be a marriage in which we struggle. It might be a battle with with sin. At various times in our lives, we feel stuck. We feel like there is no future. Uh, We can't see the light dawning. And we want to know, how can we get out? The band of the animals back in the 60s saying, we've got to get out of this place. If it's the last thing we ever do. The book of Exodus is a book about escape. That's what the word Exodus means, isn't it? It's sort of similar to our word exit. It's about the people of Israel who are suffering horrendously, as we'll see in a minute, escaping to a better future, being rescued, having this exit from their dark circumstances. Uh, into a far lighter future. And in fact, one of the main themes of this book, as hopefully we'll see over the next few weeks, is that God wants to make himself known as a rescuing God. A huge theme of Exodus is God making himself known. But not just in a kind of uh, showing off way, you know, fireworks in the sky or angels with trumpets. But very more specifically than that, he's making himself known as a rescuing God, a God of exits, exoduses. A God who pulls us out of the slavery in which we find ourselves and takes us to a far better land. So just uh, these first chapters of Exodus this morning, 
I want to see two things, two ways uh, God makes himself known as a rescuer uh, this morning. Uh, How can we know, even if at the moment your circumstances feel dark, even if you feel troubled, trapped and downcast, how can we know God better through these stories? How can we know him better as a rescuer and therefore find hope? Two things God's doing. First of all, he's giving growth through groaning. Okay, growth through groaning. Uh, let's set the scene. Let's set the scene. Uh, as the book begins, uh, we're made aware straight away that actually we're not starting a new story, but continuing uh, one that's already started. Uh, if we had a bit more of a literal translation of the Bible, the very first word of the, the book of Exodus in Hebrew is the word and. Okay, you don't normally start a book with the word and, do you, children? And being something's happened before. In fact, the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch, the five that go together, written by Moses, are books two, three, four, five, all begin and, because those first five books are one long story. And, and we meet characters that if we'd read Genesis, uh, we'd have met already. Uh, so verse one, we meet the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, that's the 12 uh, tribes as they will become. A Genesis, you'll remember, started with this paradise project. God made this perfect world, uh, a wonderful world, no science, sin, no suffering, no sickness, and put people in it to know him. You had God's people in God's place with God, God present, as we've often spoken about before. But it went downhill with our rebellion, our sin. And so God started remaking the world through this family. Uh, that's why I think in verse 5 we read that there are 70 of them. Now, why is it the number 70 significant? Well, 70, uh, if we'd read Genesis, was the number of the nations after Noah uh, and the flood. Uh, the, 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 the people of the world spread out and there were 70 nations. So the world, if you like, is, is symbolized by this number 70, the whole world. Uh, and so as we read about these 70 in the family of Israel, we're being told this is the beginning of a whole new world, a whole new people. It is through this family God is going to rescue And so they multiply and multiply and multiply. Verse 7, we get seven words that are all about the the growing in number of the people of Israel. They're fruitful, they increase greatly, they multiply, they grew exceedingly. So the land was filled with them. It's a bit like popcorn. Children, have you ever made popcorn? You know, you pour pour in the little kind of kernels, the little unpopped popcorn, and you put it in the popcorn maker and suddenly it starts going mad, popping everywhere, boom, 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 and filling up and filling up and filling up. That's what the land of Egypt was like. Uh, this family, because of the story of Joseph, had gone down to, Israel, uh, to Egypt, so it wasn't their homeland. But pop, 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 slowly Egypt was filling up with Israelites, with God's family. And in fact, that very first uh, paragraph there, and particularly verse 7, is meant to remind us again of Eden. Do you remember the first commands given to man and woman? Be fruitful and multiply. That idea of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the world with people who know God, enjoy him, glorify him. Well, that is being picked up by this family of Jacob. But just like in Eden, there's an enemy. And children, remember who the, the baddie was in Eden? It was the snake, wasn't it? The serpent, Satan. Well, here we have another Satan. It's not Satan himself this time, but Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In fact, one of the things we know about the pharaohs is they wore snakes on their headdresses. He is the serpent character in our story. And just like the serpent, he's cunning or shrewd. 
Like in, in, in Genesis, we're told that the snake was more shrewd or cunning than all the animals. And here in verse 10, Pharaoh says, let's deal shrewdly, cunningly with this people. He's worried they're going to grow too much. He might have a slave rebellion on his hands. Perhaps the Israelites will join with another nation and they'll beat up the Egyptians. And so he has two plans, two plans to, to crush and destroy God's people. The first is slavery in verses 11 through 14. Uh, let's make them slaves. Uh, time and again, uh, we're told that the Israelites now have to work for Pharaoh. Uh, interestingly, that word work is, is the same word as the Bible's word for worship. They're kind of interchangeable. Uh, the translator just has to make a call every time how to, how to translate it. Uh, the book begins, in other words, with God's people in this sort of slavery working worship relationship with Pharaoh. Uh, the Satan character. And will end, if you know the story, by them being set free to serve or worship or work for God. But this slavery to Satan, sorry, and to Pharaoh, uh, is bitter. Verse 13. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter. Uh, building these store cities, uh, the whip lashing on their backs. Serving, worshipping, living for anyone other than the real God is bitter slavery. It is ruthless the way that Pharaoh treats his people. That is what other gods are like. That is what other masters are like, ultimately. Now, one of the reasons people sometimes are sceptical about Christianity and don't want to get involved is they say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to give my life in service of someone else. In fact, even as Christians, we, we, when we shy away from obeying God, it's usually because we think if we obey him, it's going to make our lives worse. As if Satan's in our ear again, just whispering, hissing. Now, that obedience to God is it's going to make you a slave. Uh, your life will be bitter and grim if you give yourself wholeheartedly to him. Look on all the stuff you miss out on. You'll have a much better life if you just, well, just walk away from God a little bit. Live for yourself. Live for the moment. You deserve it. You're worth it. Treat yourself. But the reality is all other gods, all other masters, whatever else we give ourselves to, ultimately, well, ultimately they'll crush us. They lead to bitterness and they'll treat us ruthlessly. I think of a girl in, in youth group. A long time ago, I used to do youth work when I was young and I was never really cool, but anyway, I was young. <laughs> I used to youth work. I remember one of the teenage girls one evening. Uh, she was quite upfront. She wasn't a Christian. Uh, and uh, she had sick for me. And we were talking, I don't know why, we were talking about school. And, uh, and she started talking about how she gets ready for school. And she got up at 5 a.m. to get ready to go to school. Like, 5 a.m.? Like, that's really early. Like, what time do you leave the house? And she left, like, left the house at about half eight. What are, you, what are you doing for three and a half hours? She was getting ready. Hair makeup, clamming up, got to make sure I look my best, she was saying. So I said, well, what happens if you just don't wake up at 5am? You sleep through, you don't get up till half seven, don't go to school. There was someone who was so entrapped by the need to, to be beautiful that actually it was a cruel taskmaster. It was taking her time. It was enslaving her. It was taking away from another good when she couldn't serve that master, the good of education and growth. That's just one example of something we all do. We give ourselves to our careers, and they're not out for our good, are they? They just want to take and take and take. 
one of the things that God, uh, the book of Exodus will show us is that actually God, who later in, in a couple of chapters of time will, will reveal himself as, as the great I am, the one who needs nothing from us. Uh, that God can be a kind master to us and will be a kind master to us because he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't lack anything. It's not going to make his life worse if we don't serve him wholeheartedly. He's not out to crush us. He's out to give to us. True freedom is found in serving and worshipping God. And as soon as you turn away from that or back away from it in any way, it'll lead to slavery and this ruthless life, bitter life. But amazingly, what happens to the Israelites? Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The more they suffer, the more... The more the people of God grow. Okay, the popcorn's going totally mad, children. Imagine a popcorn machine here that's suddenly filling up the whole room. And the harder um, Pharaoh presses down, the more they grow. Okay, the higher he turns up the temperature, pop, 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 pop. Israelites everywhere. Uh, that is like that. Uh, that is often the way the church grows. A few years ago, I remember reading in a magazine about the, the church in China. Uh, and the, it wasn't a Christian magazine, actually. It was a, just a second magazine. But the dilemma the Chinese government were having uh, the church in China was growing, and there was a rule that you couldn't gather in groups of more than 30. Okay, if you got to th- uh, any more than 30, you had to be registered and all the rest of it. And the dilemma that the, the government were having was that these churches were growing to 30 people, and then because they weren't allowed to grow any bigger, they were splitting into two churches of 15, which would then grow and then split again and grow. And so the, the dilemma the Chinese government were trying to work through is, is it better for us to lift the cap and, and, and say they can just sort of grow bigger than 30, because that'll slow down the division rate? Or is it better to keep our policy up? The more cunning and shrewd these authorities are trying to crush God's church, the more she grows. How did the early church grow? Those 12 disciples sent out to preach the gospel. Well, through suffering. You read in Acts, the church is persecuted, and yet she grows. Think of the Roman Empire. It was as Christians were thrown to the lions and burnt alive at Nero's parties that the church grew. Think of the Reformation in, in, in England and the UK. Scotland before England, in fact. Uh, it's as people preached the free grace of the gospel that they were persecuted, executed. But slowly, hundreds, thousands of men and women came to faith. Uh, the Israelites were groaning. That's the word used for them in chapter 3. I had to pinch a word from the next chapter. Uh, they were groaning in slavery, but they were growing. God's people were growing uh, as they suffered. And so Pharaoh adopts uh, a plan B. Plan A was slavery, but plan B is slaughter. Uh, so verses 15 through to the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh decides to kill all the baby boys. He gets the midwives together. He thinks, well, they'll be able to get away with it. You know, a midwife can just do something sneaky while the mum's not looking. And he gets these two women who are presumably the head of the midwives. I imagine there are more than two midwives in in Israel, given the amount of children popping out. And says to them, if it's a boy, quietly kill it. Girls can live, but boys, I want them killed. Probably because they could grow up to be soldiers in rebellion. Whereas the girls, we can just steal them and make them our wives and slaves. But the midwives... Verse 17, fear God. No, we're going to serve God, not man. That'd be pretty scary. This is, Pharaoh is a kind of Hitler-type character. In fact, in many ways, what Hitler did to, uh, and tried to do uh, to the Jewish people uh, in, the, in the 1930s and 40s is exactly what Pharaoh is trying to do here. But these women stood up to him. 
These women who actually get the glory, their names are recorded forever. Thousands of years later, we know who Shifra and Pua is. Which pharaoh is this that they resist? What's his name? Do you see? No, me either. We don't know. His name's not recorded. God doesn't care about him. He cares about these seemingly insignificant women doing seemingly insignificant jobs, but who actually rescue God's people. So they totally refuse to do it. And when they get summoned before uh, God, uh, verse 18, uh, sorry, before Pharaoh, and he says, what are you doing? Why have you let these male children live? Just look at their answer. Verse 19, because the Hebrew women, unlike Egyptian women, they're vigorous and give birth before we can get to them. Now, um, that is... (laughs) That is almost certainly not true. It's probably taking the mickey out of the Egyptian women a little bit. You know, we're not layabouts like you, Pharaoh, and your women. Okay. But, but actually, we know why the boys are living. It's because we've just been told the Hebrew midwives feared God. Okay. So didn't do it. And, and some people, uh, therefore, have jumped on these midwives and said, well, they shouldn't lie. It's wrong to lie, isn't it? Okay, ninth commandment, don't bear false witness. I think that's rather unfair. Uh, first of all, God rewards the midwives. Verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. And verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them family. So God doesn't seem to punish them for this lie. I don't want to get too sort of wrapped up in it this morning because you have a whole section on lying. But essentially, I think the reason they're okay, um, deceiving Pharaoh, is that they're doing so in order to protect life, to save life. And they're not just lying, lying to save their own skin. They're not lying because it's sort of a bit embarrassing for them, the way we often lie. They're lying to protect other people. You see this several times in the Bible, and it's always commended. Uh, Rahab, she protects the spies when they come into, into Jericho uh, and deceives the people who are trying to capture the Israelite spies. And she's commended for it. Okay, something similar with Jeremiah and various other places uh, in, in, uh, uh, in the scriptures. Whenever you have a, a command in the Bible, you just got to be careful to, to put it into the context of the whole of Scripture. So yes, there is a command. You must not bear false witness. Okay, and of course, you shouldn't lie most of the time. But, but there's always situations where you have to think a bit more carefully. That way, it's a bit like the sixth commandment. Children, can any of you remember what the sixth commandment is? Oh, look, turn through. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, Dom singing the song. I'm not going to listen to Dom singing the entire song. <laughs> the sixth commandment, do not kill. So you think, oh, it's always wrong to kill, is it? Well, most of the time, yes. But what's the penalty for, for killing? Okay, that's say the Ten Commandments, a bit later, just the same bit of Exodus, in fact, lays out the penalty for killing. What's the penalty for killing? Well, it's the death penalty in Israel's law code. Well, does that mean that when the executioner executes the murderer, he has then broken the sixth commandment and himself needs to be executed on. Well, of course not. There are some circumstances, defending yourself in war, for example, or defending your house if burglars break in, where the Israelite law code allowed, sadly, uh, killing under certain circumstances. So too, these women are lying, sure, but to protect lives. That's why in, you can read all sorts of stories of um, particularly in Holland, actually, there's a couple come out of France too, of Christians hiding Jews in World War II. And when the Nazis knock on the door and say, you know, are you hiding any, Jew- any Jewish people? They say, no, they're lying. But that's okay if you're trying to save lives from Satan. Anyway, uh, this plan again fails, therefore. God conquers again, and the people grow and grow and grow. Despite the groaning and the suffering, God's people increase. 
What are we to do with this? What are we to do with this story? It's a, it's a rollicking story, but what does it mean for us? Remember the question we had beforehand, that, that Westminster Catechism question. It's our question from the week. What does the Bible primarily teach? And the answer, the Bible primarily teaches what man is to believe about God and what God requires of man. Let's ask that question, this passage. What are we meant to believe about God from here? It's a great question. You can just take to any passage of the Bible if you're reading a Bible study or reading on your own. Let's ask, first of all, what are we meant to believe about God? What does this passage tell us about God? Well, it tells us, does it not, that God always keeps his word. God always keeps his word. Nothing can stop him keeping his word, keeping his promise. God promised that he would fill the earth with these descendants of Abraham. He would repopulate the earth with people who knew him and loved him. And he's doing it. Whatever Satan throws, whatever persecution comes, God grows his people. God grows his church. And that's a great comfort for us. It's a great comfort for you this morning if you're looking for escape, if your life is dark and you're struggling. That is a comfort for you. Why? It's a comfort if you're looking for this exit because people and paradise always go together in the Bible. Okay, God has promised a people and a paradise. Okay, a world where there is no more darkness, no more suffering, where all that is crushing you at the moment is gone. God has bound together his promise to grow a people with his promise one day to provide a paradise for them. So when you see God growing his people, growing his church, you know he's going to provide the place for them to live in this paradise world. A world that is promised uh, when Jesus returns. Uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit like this. Do you want to think, think about it like this? Imagine you really, what you really wanted, and I know this is true for some of you, uh, is you really wanted a puppy for your next birthday. Okay? You really wanted a puppy. And in the weeks leading up to your birthday, or if you're a grown-up, you really wanted a puppy. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, leading up to your next birthday, Okay, your dad or husband um, heads out and you see him one day building a, well, building a kennel in the garden. Now, you haven't seen any dog, but suddenly there's a kennel. The next day you look outside and there's a bowl ready. The next day there's, there's Fido painted over the top of this kennel. There's a lead on the kitchen table. There's some cans of pedigree chum appearing in the kitchen cabinet. Well, the dog might not have come yet, but why is dad doing all this? Well, he's getting ready for the people to move in. Sorry, for the dog to move in, for the puppy to move in. <laughs> yeah, he's going to put you in the kennel and look after the dog. Yeah, um, that's what he's doing. He's getting one thing ready because something else is coming. The, the, the thing you really desire is coming. That is what's going on here. God is preparing the people, but because he's preparing the people, you know the paradise will come um, as well. There's no point God preparing a people if he's then just going to leave them enslaved to Pharaoh. That is not the kind of God he is. God has brought you into his kingdom. God is bringing millions upon millions of men and women and children into his kingdom around the world at the moment in order that, well, not that he leaves you as life is at the moment, not that he, in order that he would leave you in your sin or your suffering or your illness or your grief, but that he would lead you through this into this paradise earth that he promises. Now, the Bible is a bit like one of those paintings children make at preschool, kind of butterfly diagrams, I think they call them. You know, when you paint on one half of the piece of paper, children, you fold it over and it sort of matches. 
Think about the story of creation. God makes the world, the paradise. Then he makes the people, puts them into the paradise. But when it all goes wrong, he fixes it in the other order. A creation, paradise, then people. Recreation or salvation, it's people first, then paradise. I haven't got four hands, so I can't pack them onto each other. But you get the point. The growth of the church around the world should encourage you to know that there is an exodus coming for you too. That one day he will get you into paradise. But of course it's also a, a challenge. Those two questions again. What are we to believe about God? But also what does God require of man? What does God require of us as we read this passage? Well, the most obvious thing is to be on board with his plan, to become part of this plan, to fill the world with his people. Okay? You may be groaning at the moment for all sorts of reasons, because you're not safely home to paradise. But while we groan, we're meant to be part of this project of growth. It comes through two ways. One is proclamation, and the other is procreation. Proclamation. We're meant to preach the gospel to all people. We should be desperate for other men, women and children to come to faith. Children, perhaps you can think of friends you could pray for, even this evening, as you go to sleep. Please make my friend Sarah become a Christian. Amen. Just very simple like that. That's part of God's plan for your life. In fact, if that's what he's doing in the world at the moment, he's letting the suffering continue for whatever reason, it's not explained here, but he's growing the people, then that's what our lives are meant to be about too. Pray. Pray for opportunities. Speak, invite. Let me ask you honestly, if you're a Christian, how much is your life plan in harmony with God's world plan? So, so often uh, we have our life plan and we want to do it as Christians. So I'll be at church, I'll be at home group, but I'm not trying to do in the world what God is trying to do in the world. I know not all of us are brilliant front foot evangelists. We're not the kind of people who can sit down on a train and strike up a conversation. And that's okay. We're different. But we can pray, pray for opportunities. We can invite. We can give little books or little pamphlets. There's all sorts of ways we can be involved. Proclamation. And also here, procreation. I, I don't want to talk about this too much this morning, but I don't want to skip over it either. How did the people of God literally grow in, in, in Egypt? Well, through having children. That first command given to mankind, be fruitful and multiply, is never taken away. God wants his people, when they are married, and that's not true for everybody, he wants them to have children and bring them up to know him. Now, I need to be careful because I realise some of you would desperately like to be married, but you're not. Does that mean you can't be part of God's plan? Of course not. Some of you would like children, but you don't have them. And, and these things are part of the groaning and pain very often. Okay, so please don't mishear me when I talk about uh, the raising of children as if it's the only thing. But it is part of why God gave marriage. Malachi 2. Why did God give marriage? Malachi 2 tells us. So that he would have godly offspring. Ezekiel calls the children of the people of God um, God's children. God says they are my children. Very interesting, isn't it? They belong to the world. They even belong to you ultimately, they are mine. Or in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says they're holy. Uh, this idea of Christians having children and discipling them and therefore filling the world with God's people uh, is one that perhaps we've lost sight of a little bit in sort of 21st century English evangelicalism, but it's something massively in our heritage. Again, it's not one or the other, it's not evangelism or discipling our children. <laughs> 
It's both and, isn't it? But let's not fall into the trap that the idea of, of you know, having lots of kids, and I know circumstances change how many, all the rest of it, but, but the idea of having lots of kids and bringing them up, God willing, to know and love the Lord, is somehow not a part of God's church growth strategy. Or somehow it's an Old Testament thing, as if the Old Testament was just about birth and the New Testament was about spiritual birth. No, the Old Testament was all about spiritual rebirth and faith. Uh, just as much as in the New. Uh, this actually is really good news for you. If you're a mum trying to raise children and you feel like you're not doing anything dramatic for the kingdom, you've not, I don't know, you've not been to North Korea to preach the gospel or you've not been doing street evangelism down a Leeds town centre, you've been at home trying to teach uh, your, your kids at night by night the Bible, whatever it may be. Well, that is, makes you part of this growth plan. It gives dignity to, 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 to motherhood. Again, Pua and Shifra are named. Pharaoh isn't. What is God doing? He's growing the church, though they groan. Uh, now we read uh, chapter two, or the first half uh, of chapter two, uh, but I think uh, we'll save most of that for next week. Uh, so let me finish uh, where we started. Uh, do you feel the burden of needing to get out? Are the circumstances, situations, sins you are trying to escape? Uh, the promise of Exodus 1 is that God will get you out. That's why he sent his son into the world. Uh, ultimately, these midwives, Shifra and Pua, by protecting uh, these young boys, uh, meant that one young boy would one day be born. It would, in fact, be God's own son. Shifra and Pua are not just saving their own generation. If the Israelites had been wiped out, there would be no gospel. These two seemingly insignificant women have meant, humanly speaking, that the world can be saved. In fact, through them, God has saved the world. God uses people in his project to fill the world. And supremely, of course, his own son, the Lord Jesus, who came to, to pay for your sins in order that you might be clean. Uh, who rose again in a new resurrection body to show us that the new world will come. Jesus had a physical body, didn't he? He ate food. People could touch him. He is the beginning of that new paradise world. So when you look at Jesus, you see both that God wants to redeem you from your sins, pull you out, and is willing to pay the price himself in order to do so, and that he will fulfill on his promise to bring the paradise as well as the people. If you're downcast, therefore, and are warning a way out, if your life feels like monotony, be it because of your circumstances or because of your sin or your suffering, then in the resurrection of Christ, uh, you see God is for you. He will rescue, and there is an exit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who rescues. You are a God of exits, of exoduses. Uh, you have God, a God who has promised that one day uh, you will pull us uh, out of what remains of our slavery and our suffering, away from our groaning, and will take us to glory. And so we pray, even as we suffer now, that you would use us, as you use Shifra and Pua, to grow the church, uh, to fill the world uh, with people who know you, love you, glorify you. Uh, bless our children as they grow up with new life, we pray. Might they embrace the gospel by faith. Uh, make us more evangelistically prayerful, more evangelistically bold. Give us opportunities, even in this uh, difficult times. 
And Father, most of all, lift our eyes to see Christ, who has conquered sin and suffering, uh, who has risen from the dead, who is the first fruits of a new world. Might we see him and might our hearts uh, leap and rejoice to know that our future is secure in him. This we ask in his name. Amen.